So we will not be uh, going over Judges 16, um, but rather continuing in Ecclesiastes 1. So if you would turn with me there. Last time, a week or two ago, I forget, uh, we began and went through Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. And today we will continue in Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18. So just after Proverbs, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, thank you, verses 12 through 18. This is the word of our holy God. Let us give our attention to the reading of God's word. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Thus far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us today. Let us pray before we hear God speak to us through the sermon. Almighty God, our Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illumine us uh, to your word, uh, that we would hear it and that we would receive it uh, gladly and that we would be able to uh, see the realistic perspective of this fallen world, that it is not our home, that it is filled with much absurdity much of what should not be, uh, for it is cursed. Uh, But God, we can be grateful. Uh, We can enjoy what you have given to us. And nevertheless, Lord, we must look. Uh, We must look beyond this world. We must look to you. Even you, Jesus Christ, as you now sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven itself, waiting to return. Lord, this is our home. Help us to uh, cling uh, there where our anchor is held uh, firm and fast in you, at the throne of grace itself, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So once again, Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18. So who comes to mind when you think about what it means to be wise? Who is the wisest man or woman in your life? For the Israelites, it was King Solomon. He was the wisest that they would ever have thought of, especially at that time. In 1 Kings 3, Solomon was given a wonderful opportunity from God. God uh, asked him, ask what I shall give to you. And so saying to Solomon, I will give you whatever you want, just ask. And Solomon responded by recounting God's steadfast love to his father David, as well as his own reception of God's kindness. And then Solomon makes his request. Uh, As God himself makes clear, he doesn't ask for longer life. He doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for the destruction of his enemies. Uh, Probably in some way, wise things to request, especially as a king. But instead, he makes the ideal request to God and asks for wisdom. 
wisdom in ruling God's people. And so God grants to Solomon this royal wisdom, a wisdom that has never been and would never be after him. Indeed, this request itself showed uh, the already great wisdom of Solomon. And so Solomon goes from wise to wiser, uh, and indeed to the wisest, all thanks to the loving kindness of God through this offer. And from that point on, we do know uh, in 1 Kings uh, 1 through 10, chapters 1 through 10, Solomon's wisdom is put on display, and not to mention his ever-increasing greatness as king over Israel. The first 10 chapters of uh, 1 Kings are quite glorious. And yet, what did Solomon's wisdom really amount to at the end of the day, when it was all said and done? What did it amount to? Well, as Kohelet asks us in verse 3, what is the advantage for mankind in all the toil which he toils under the sun? And by advantage, again, we're not thinking just of some advantages. Of course, there are some advantages. But the great advantage, a kind of grand and glorious advantage of all advantages. What great advantage is there in all the toil which he toils under the sun? And indeed, as one reads on in 1 Kings and comes to Solomon's great failure in chapter 11... And then following, what really is the advantage for mankind in all the wisdom that he could acquire and apply under the sun? If that great failure happened to Solomon, what is it for us if we would acquire even a portion of such wisdom? The answer is once again, nothing, nothing. For as we'll see today, not even the divinely gifted wisdom to King Solomon could save him from the absurdity of life under the sun. Truly here in Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18, God ultimately makes it clear that your only hope is to trust in the royal wisdom of King Jesus. Yes, trust in royal wisdom, not in your own wisdom, but not just any kind of royal and high and holy wisdom, but the royal wisdom of King Jesus. That is the point of this text. Trust in the royal wisdom of King Jesus. And this is because, first of all, the end of a result, you know, the end of Kohelet's royal wisdom is absurd. It ends in absurdity. The end of his royal wisdom ends in absurdity. But also the acquisition, the acquisition of Kohelet's royal wisdom is absurd. It ends in absurdity. But third, the hope of Christ's royal wisdom ends in peace in the spirit. It does not end in absurdity. It gives us peace. In the spirit. And so first, the end of Kohelet's royal wisdom is absurd. Now, why does Kohelet tell us again that he is king over Israel in verse 12? Why does he tell us this again? He's trying to show us the ultimate emptiness of even something as wonderful as the wisdom of an earthly king, even wisdom given directly by God himself. We all know that communication is more than just what you say. Equally important is how you say it. And so comedians are nothing without perfect delivery. Love letters would be ice cold if they were in the format of a terms of service agreement. A surgeon making his request with poetic rhythm and emotional abstraction, trying to speak beautifully, this could cause his patient to die on the operating table. And so how Kohelet speaks to us from Ecclesiastes 1.12 through 2.26, from 1.12 to 2.26, is by way of what uh, theologians and scholars call royal inscription. You don't need to remember that, but this, that there is a 
style of writing happening right now that affects the interpretation. It is a royal inscription. Now, in these royal inscriptions of the ancient Near East, the king would put his royalty on display to show his greatness, his wisdom, his power, his riches, all his glory. It called the reader to give reverent attention to what the king was trying to get across. Now, although Kohelet uses this genre, he, it, he doesn't use it for the same kind of royal propaganda that the reader would have expected. Instead, he is using this genre to actually subvert itself and keep his reader from coveting the apparent glory of royal wisdom. So he does use this royal inscription genre, but he's using it uh, to have a kind of opposite effect of what they would have expected. But before we get to this conclusion, we have to first recognize the details of Kohelet's quest, his adventure, his expedition, where he says in verse 13 that he applied his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And so what is the scope and tool of choice of Kohelet's quest in verse 13? Well, he goes again on this, this expedition, this, this quest, to examine every single thing, everything. And he's going to use wisdom to do it. And so we remember the term under the heavens refers to the spatial dimension of mankind. That is to say, under the heavens is basically like saying everywhere, everywhere. And this seemingly grand pursuit uh, fits perfectly in this genre of royal inscription. Now, we might scoff at such a broad stroke statement, especially uh, in our joy of living after the American Revolution, where we have removed the heavy hand of the monarchy. But we are not the primary audience of Kohelet. He's writing to those who knew no other context. Royal rule was the status quo. It was what was normal. It was their way of life. The humble farmer would never dream of examining everything under the heavens. But for the king, not only would he dream it, he would do it. This is his domain. He is the king. If anyone can do it, the king can do it. This was the very prerogative, the job as it were, uh, given his regal status as king. He could do everything. He had access to everything. Furthermore, as king, he could also apply all of his royal resources to everything he came across. And with Kohelet presenting himself here as the great and wise King Solomon, not only could the king successfully examine everything, but he could also apply his tool of choice to plumb the depths of its riches. And what was this tool? But it was the divine gift of wisdom. And so he uses wisdom to examine everything. Now, what is the unhappy business in verse 13? The unhappy business it is that the use of wisdom is necessary and yet it ultimately is unable to fix our problems. It's necessary to use wisdom, but ultimately it's unable to fix those problems that we seek out and discover. As soon as Kohelet steps out onto his quest, as soon as he makes his first strike at everything under the heavens, he concludes that it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Again, the terrible preoccupation that man is preoccupied with is that we must seek to use wisdom, but we're humbled knowing that it is not an end in itself. This is the unavoidable reality of life under the sun. 
of life in this sin-cursed and fallen world. That we must pursue wisdom. We must use wisdom. And that wisdom is a virtue. Indeed, wisdom is good. But that just like your favorite tool, wisdom is not an end in itself. It will not fix the world. Indeed, it cannot fix the world. For it's the God-given curse of the misery of this life that we cannot find the rest we were intended to enjoy above the sun so long as we are using what is only available to us under the sun. So what is the result then of Kohelet's quest in verses 14 to 15? In a word, the result is absurdity. Absurdity, and we've gone over this in the previous sermon, that absurdity is really the fact that life is not as it should be. And not only does Kohelet express the royal pain of his royal quest, but he finally finishes his sad adventure. He declares that he has accomplished his goal, having observed all the deeds that have been done under the sun, having seen everything that there is to see in this life. And here are his results. Everything is absurd and a striving after wind. His royal wisdom, even given by God, hasn't changed his conclusion in verse 2. He may enjoy a gift of wisdom beyond anyone else, but God's gifts to be enjoyed in this life are not to be mistaken with God's exclusive gift of salvation for the life in the world to come. Kohelet's wisdom did not save him. It only confirmed the absurdity of life under the sun. Wisdom can no more save us then can the wind be bound up in our hands? And to illustrate his conclusion, Kohelet provides us with his own proverb in verse 15, where he says, What is made crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So notice the crookedness. The crookedness is the reason life under the sun cannot be straightened. It's not merely that the world happens to be crooked, but that it was bent It was bent by someone. And likewise, notice that the lacking is the reason. It is the reason a solution to the absurdity of life by the power of wisdom, it cannot be counted. It's not just that the solution is lacking only until we figure it out and find the cure. Rather, the solution isn't even available for us to discover. And this is because God himself has bent the outcome of life under the sun. He has made it impossible to fix with the tools of this life, of this world. And indeed, this is God's unchangeable will. Now for Adam, prior to the bending, for Adam, life under the sun didn't begin this way. For him, there was a straight path from the Garden of Eden into the glories of the heavenly Zion. But to get there, he had to stand before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that judgment tree that your pastor told you about uh, a week or so ago. And he had to deny the fragrant smell of its luscious fruit. He had to fulfill the covenant of works at creation to receive the glory of heaven for himself and his posterity. That is to say, his descendants. Yet we know he failed. He denied the glory of God for the quickly rotting and the utterly poisonous fruit of self-indulgence. And so God bent his path and removed him from the garden. And yet we know that in this, God was gracious to Adam. 
so that man would not live forever in rebellion against God, he barred him from that tree of life. And so he would instead look outside the garden to the promise of God's grace through the seed of the woman to come, who though he would be injured in the process, would ultimately crush the head of the serpent and put an end to the absurdity of this life for his chosen people. But before we get there, Kohelet does have more to say. And so the second reason you can trust in the royal wisdom of King Jesus is because even the acquisition, not only the end of Kohelet's royal wisdom, but even the acquisition, even acquiring it, is itself, itself uh, ends in absurdity. Now, why does Kohelet bring up his greatness and immense wisdom in verse 16? Well, first he does this because it's fitting. Again, that's what this genre is all about. It's the royal inscription genre. As kings do in these writings, he's very clear about how great a king he is. And yet, as we've learned, this isn't ultimately to build himself up. It's kind of like Paul does when he boasts. This is to keep his hearers from lusting after his royal treasures, even his royal wisdom. For this, too, ends in an absurdity and a striving after wind. Second, he does this to emphasize what he's just said for the details of verses 16 to 18 are very similar to verses 12 to 15. Simply summarizing and restating, he's emphasizing. But third, he does this uh, to unite his reader with the organic development of redemptive history. The organic development of redemptive history. And so Kohelet's intention with verse 16 is that his reader would be united with the rest of God's word, especially as they remember the history of King Solomon in 1 Kings 3 through 10. Scripture is not a melting pot of disconnected theological truths. Instead, in the beauty of the Spirit's inspiration, the Scripture is an organically united whole. It is a history of God's salvation for his people, from creation to fall to grace and to glory, where we are now in Ecclesiastes, examining life under the sun, simultaneously suffering the common curse of this fallen world, and yet looking forward in hope, the very hope of glory, because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, what then was the result of his acquiring all this knowledge and wisdom in verse 17? Again, the very acquisition of this great tool is like striving after wind. Not only had he found absurdity in everything he observed under the sun, but he also found absurdity while he applied his heart to the quest in the first place. From the pursuit of wisdom itself to the pursuits she made with wisdom, he found that everything in this life was absurd. It was like striving after wind. You could put every ounce of effort imaginable but then you still would not even hold on to a single wisp. Just go home today and try to catch the wind, and you will see what Kohelet is talking about. And that is the absurd reality of this life, that your great skills, your great efforts, they are great, but they cannot save you. They cannot save you. And so what does Kohelet tell us comes with increasing wisdom and knowledge? In verse 18, he says it brings us vexation and sorrow. To have vexation is to have frustration. 
And to have sorrow is to have pain. And so adding further evidence to his case for absurdity, Kohelet presents us with another proverb saying, in the abundance of wisdom is abundant vexation. And when one increases knowledge, one increases pain. You seek wisdom because it's good. And it's true you can't help but want or you shouldn't help. You, you must seek to be wiser. It is a good thing. You enjoy wisdom because it does bless you. But do you not realize that it does not always bless you? Of course you do. And you also realize that it has its limits for you in this life under the sun. It cannot solve, it does not solve all of your problems. Nor can it answer all of your questions. And even on your wisest day, you're still surrounded by so many fools. And more often than not, you cannot help but see that fool walking next to you so close on the street is actually your own reflection in the glass. And it's the same thing with knowledge. And so your wisdom and your knowledge cannot save you. Not even if they were divinely given like was given to King Solomon. And that is Kohelet's point. His conclusion of life under the sun as being absolutely absurd, it is not to say that it is pointless or meaningless. He is not a nihilist. He is not a fatalist. He is not a pessimist. He's not a downer. But he is a realist, staring out at this sin curse, this fallen world in all honesty, and he calls us to do the same thing. His point is that we all know this world is broken and we want to fix it and it needs fixing, but it cannot be fixed from within. And that's absurd. It doesn't feel right. It shouldn't be that way. But therein we see, we find, and there lies the grace of God amidst this absurdity. That it forces us, by grace, it forces us to look beyond this life under the sun. It forces us to look at God alone. Indeed, our only hope is in the same God who bent this world in his judgment curse to instead bring us to new life by the power of his grace alone. And so finally, you must trust in the royal wisdom of King Jesus because the hope of Christ's royal wisdom is peace in the Spirit. Indeed, Jesus is the fulfillment of Solomon. I mean, he says it himself. He says this in Luke 11. He has come as the one greater than Solomon. Where Solomon was great, Jesus is greater. Where Solomon was wise, Jesus is wiser. Where Solomon was king, Jesus is the everlasting king of kings. And focusing on the wisdom of Jesus, we can first note how we hear in Scripture about Jesus' immense wisdom, even noted by his peers, even when he was a child in Luke 2. And again, when he had grown up in Matthew 13. And in Colossians 2, Jesus is described as the very content of God's mystery and the dwelling place of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As God incarnate, Jesus came as the very fulfillment and perfection of the wisdom of God. And because of this, we're not to be fooled by the arguments of the world against Christ, especially those calling us to come back to things like the Old Covenant, as Paul says in Colossians 2. Instead, we're called to walk in the grace and life of Christ by faith, fully assured of what his atonement has accomplished for us. Furthermore, especially 
as we hear in places like 1 Corinthians 1 through 2, even as we read today, and we'll read again. Jesus actually went against the wisdom of this world. This wisdom of the world is actually foolishness compared to the wisdom of God. Where it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And in his own way, Jesus certainly experienced the absurdity of wisdom's limits under the sun. For he too had increased in wisdom to experience the failure of everyone around him in their pursuits and failures of wisdom, and to himself yet be perfectly wise, and yet face the greatest absurdity of all, to die for sins that were not his own. That is absurd. But by the wisdom of God, this was simultaneously the greatest love imaginable. Because he also did this willingly. He chose to submit himself to the absurdity of the cross. The curse of the cross. As the righteous one dying for his unrighteous people. To show us that this was the wisdom and power of God. For salvation to all who would believe. And through this victorious work. Rising from the dead three days later. Ascending into heaven. Sitting at the right hand of the father. In absolute authority. And waiting to return so that he can judge the world in righteousness. He did so so that the wisdom of the new creation would be his. And so that he would grant it to us as his brothers and sisters. And that we would rest secure as fellow heirs with him. And so we say amen to Paul. Who proclaims, oh the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. And we sing out with the endless vision of God's heavenly host, his chorus of angels, where they say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In closing, let us briefly consider what is the present and future experience of Christ's wisdom. Within the very beauty and glory of who Jesus is and what he has done is the sure hope that this is all applied to his people by grace and received through faith. And because of this gracious reality of our union with Christ, God says we are fellow heirs with Jesus. And as fellow heirs with Christ, as his brothers and his sisters, we are promised to permanently enjoy his Holy Spirit. And so although you will suffer the absurdity of this life under the sun, although you will find that the necessary pursuit of wisdom and with wisdom will still feel like striving after the wind, you are nevertheless free. You are free to enjoy the hope of God in Christ Jesus through the gift of the Holy Spirit, to live in the wisdom of Jesus for your life, to look forward in hope, to the world to come. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew uses the same word for wind and spirit. I'm sure you've heard that. And it doesn't mean every time wind is mentioned that it's the spirit or that every time spirit is mentioned, it's wind. It's not what it's saying. But unlike the wisdom that we can attain in this life, which ends in a striving after wind, the wisdom of God in Christ, in his gospel, it ends in the peace of his spirit. 
And so let us close by listening again to the wisdom of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31. So going back a little bit. At verse 18, this is God's word of wisdom to us this day. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the, discerning of the di- discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so again, you can trust in the royal wisdom of King Jesus. Because the end of Kohelet's royal wisdom is absurd. The acquisition of his wisdom is absurd. But the hope of Christ's royal wisdom, our King, it is peace in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, full of wisdom and truth, Lord, we thank you for such wisdom from above, from you from beyond this life under the sun. For what we call wisdom is actually folly. But Lord, what we would call folly to your face is actually true wisdom given from heaven itself so that we would be saved. Lord, that is the great purpose of your word. It is salvation in Jesus Christ. And so may your Uh, pastors preach Christ crucified week in and week out, morning and evening. May your people be fully satisfied in this, the true wisdom of all wisdom, of salvation in Jesus and nothing more and nothing less. May we not grumble and complain when our ears are not tickled by the things we want to hear. But Lord, may we rejoice and come with gratitude to hear what you have to say to us, which is that we are fools, but that you are wise, that you are loving and gracious, 
and that you have shown this to us in Jesus, applied it to us by your spirit, and that we now can boast in a way, so long as we are boasting in the greatness of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. Lord, help us, lead us to live for your glory this week until we meet again. This evening, of course, Lord, bring us back in safety. But then as we live this week, let us meet again, Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day, until we meet finally in the great kingdom of God, consummate. Amen.